Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. Well, let's turn to Luke, and I want you to look at Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 33. This is an interesting passage of Scripture, and I'm going to read it and pray over it as we start. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Let's pray. Father, as we encounter your word this morning, your word made flesh, who is Jesus, and also your written word, which is this text from the Gospel of Luke. Would you speak through me and to each of us directly by your Spirit? May everything I say and everything that we hear be in agreement with you, Lord God. In your name we pray. Amen. This is a curious passage. It comes right after a a big disagreement, a rather scandalous time, when Jesus and his disciples go to eat and drink with sinners with tax collectors at the house of Levi, and having been confronted, which we talked about last week, by the Pharisees and the scribes and the close followers of the law, now Jesus goes on to teach them, to speak to all those gathered, maybe Pharisees, maybe scribes, would include the disciples, and of course Levi and these other sinners who are probably still in hearing, still able to capture the moment of what's going on. What is Jesus getting at here? Because there's three things that are said. The first thing is this parable or story of a a bridegroom and a party, which is a reference that Jesus will make time and time again. In those days, you would have a lot of parties leading up to a wedding. There was the time when the bridegroom and and the bride would come together, but even before that, the groom would host parties for families and out-of-towners that would come in, and we'll see a lot of parables referencing that sort of thing. But also, uh, there's these two other parables. There's a parable dealing with clothes and a patch that's put on clothing and a parable dealing with wine and wine being poured into an old wine skin versus a new. Let's take each of these three and just kind of understand what is at stake. What's the issue here? Well, with the bridegroom and the bride thing, with the party thing, the Jewish people had fasts, some of which were required by Scripture. You would have a fasting around the time of atonement annually, and some of which were required by culture. 
different fasts appointed on specific days or times of the week or times out of the year. And to be a devout Jewish person, part of that culture would have required fasting at consistent times and consistent types of fasting as well. We tend to think of fasting as what Jesus did in the desert, no food or, or no water. But fasting, of course, can be all sorts of things, different kinds of foods that are, are taken away or drinks or times that you eat during the day or at night. For example, the Muslims practice the month of Ramadan where they will not eat during the course of the sunlight. They'll rise at four in the morning and eat and then they won't eat again until the sun has set, sometimes eight or nine o'clock at night. So fasting had a lot of different things, but it was an intentional removal of things that were otherwise good and edible and drinkable for the purpose of focusing your heart on the Lord and on his word and what he wanted you to think about during that fast. To be a good Jewish person was to follow those fasts. And here Jesus is sitting and eating with people who obviously don't practice fasting. John in the wilderness, what was his fast? Well, it was eating almost nothing but locusts and wild honey. Fasting to John was a strict spiritual apparatus designed to create disciples that would follow through any sort of hardship, thick or thin. And yet Jesus is not with John in the wilderness at this point, a fact that would divide his disciples and maybe almost somewhat divide John and Jesus all the way to John's death. But rather, he's with these new disciples, these new people, these sinners and tax collectors. And, and let me tell you, when they had a party, they had a party. I mean, they were drinking it up. The barrels would be tapped. The wineskins brought out. The food would be spread out. These were wealthy people. And in those days, if you had a lot of money, there wasn't a whole lot that you could buy. No TVs, no fancy cars. I guess you could get a fancy camel. But they had parties, food, wine, and drink, big houses, courtyards in which to celebrate. So question that Jesus is facing is, well, are you a John guy, like a really super devout Jew? That's who we thought you were, Jesus. We thought you were, you know, really religious and devout. See, even though the Jewish people didn't necessarily love John, they at least respected him as an ultra-conservative call to repentant, Old Testament prophecy kind of dude. These kinds of people showed up from time to time throughout Scripture. Jeremiah and Isaiah and others that would come in and say, repent, 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 and would live in deserts and fast and wear camel's hair. And, and the Jews at least understood that type. The ultra-Orthodox, the ultra-conservative. But here's Jesus with what we might call the ultra-liberal. Religiously speaking, politically speaking, those terms didn't mean much in those days. Here's Jesus sitting with people that might have still claimed to be Jews, but really didn't live like it. So which one are you, Jesus? Are you a party animal? Or are you a, a real devout John type who's going to go live in the wild and eat the locusts and the wild honey and really show your devotion? The second parable deals with the same kind of question. Because what Jesus responds to them is, well, hey, I'm here. Party on. Because the whole point of the party is me. In other words, he cuts through 
what the Jewish people have as their set of assumptions to clarify why he is at this party and why it's okay for him to be at this party. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and scribes of the law, I'm not conservative like you. I'm not ultra-radical conservative like John. I'm not even a party animal like these partiers. I'm the reason why any of you do any of that. Oh, man, that's a change, isn't it? You can begin to see why the Pharisees and the scribes get angry at Jesus over the course of the coming chapters. Jesus says, you have a party when the bridegroom is here. That's me. You have a party when the reason for the party walks in the room. This isn't what you think it is, this Bacchanal drunken revelry that all these sinners would usually have. No, 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 no. They invited me, which suddenly graces and blesses this entire occasion, because now they're throwing a party for me. And, and that fasting stuff? Yeah, you're going to fast. But when you fast, do you know why you're going to fast? You're going to fast because I'm gone. In other words, all that fasting isn't to appease your ultra-conservative orthodox religiosity. It's to honor me. Oh, wow. You remember how we talked about last week the paradigm shift. Jesus just took the paradigm out of them and their conservative-liberal divide, again, religiously speaking, conservative-liberal divide, and he said, no, 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 both of you, it's about me. I'm the one you've come to celebrate. Which helps us to come to the next two parables, which can be a little confusing. The first one is about clothing. If I had an old jacket, this is getting to be an old jacket. It's probably old to you because I wear it every other sermon. But if I had an old jacket that had a tear in it, and, and, and it was a leather jacket in particular, and, and the leather had stretched out and worn and faded over time, and you sewed a new leather patch onto an old jacket. New leather tends to shrink and expand. It hasn't settled out. It hasn't done the work of time needed to make leather become something malleable and soft and, and usable as a patch. And so if you had a jacket or a cloak or something that was really worked well and, and you took something that was a cut of new fabric, new wool, for example, as they would have used commonly during those days, you would see a tear because the old fabric or leather would, would continue to sag and stretch and do what it does, but that new stuff wouldn't give in the same way. It's tighter, it's, it's tougher, it's not as ready to relax and go with what the old fabric is doing. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm new. You can't just appendage me to your old ways of practice. You can't just take what your thoughts are and add me to them like I'm part of your scheme. I'm my own thing. You need a whole way of thinking, a new jacket, a new cloak, a new robe made out of new material. And then he says the same thing about the wineskin. 
In those days, wine would have uh, been a little bit of what we would call nowadays bottle conditioned. Uh, if you brew something that's alcoholic, you have a fermentation, and if you leave some of the particles or sugar or yeast in the actual thing that you're fermenting, then it will continue to condition. I have friends of mine that make beer at home. And when you make beer at home, you have to be careful about your fermenting and making sure the sugar is used up because if you pour something into a glass jar that is still fermenting and you put a tight cap on it, uh, you might get some bubbles, but if you're, if you're, careful, if you're not careful, then it's, it's going to just explode in your refrigerator and shoot all over the place and you're going to have glass bits and, and beer to clean up all over your refrigerator. And I've had friends that have told me that that happens. Well, wine wasn't much different in those days. It was an alcoholic beverage that was formed out of pressed grapes, and, and they would have filtered that, that stuff out, but their filters weren't like ours. I mean, they might have used a cloth filter, uh, maybe a metal grate to get the big bits, but they weren't getting out all of the sugars and all of the yeast, and they weren't aging it the same way that we might age it on a consistent basis. And so you had new wineskins for new wine because as the new wineskins made out of leather uh, would sag and stretch, it would accommodate the bubbling of that fermentation, of the alcohol continuing to turn sugar into, or sorry, the yeast continuing to turn sugar into alcohol and into bubbles. And that bubbles, if you put it into an old wineskin, which is already stretched, which is already used up, which has already had the wine in it that, that expanded it to its utmost, well, it's going to burst. It's, it's going to go. Maybe something the kids can understand is you don't take an old stretched out balloon and try to make it a water balloon. What happens? It's going to explode when you're filling it up. You get those new balloons, the tight ones that really hurt when you fling it at someone and you fill those suckers up with lots of water and then you're ready to go and you have a good, nice, tight water balloon. If you have an old, floppy, saggy balloon with stretched out areas and you fill that with water, you're never going to get past the spigot. It's going to give up on you. Jesus is saying, I'm the new wine. This is a new thing, a new kingdom, a new movement. You can't put this into your old containers your old ways of thinking, your old paradigms. And he even says, uh, no one after drinking the old wine desires the new because he says the old is good. He's even implying to the Pharisees, you're not ready for this. You, you, you aren't mentally prepared to hand. You've got what you think works for you. So you don't want this new stuff this new way of living, this new kingdom. He's, he's almost mocking them a little bit or, or, or pushing them aside, saying, you've got your old wineskin and your old wine and you think that's good enough and I'm coming along with something new and, and you're not ready for this. You've got to get rid of that old wineskin and that old wine if you even want to have a little glimpse of what is to come. Well, how, where, how do we put these things together to make sense in our heads? Uh, new wine and, and new wineskin, a new patch on a new robe. You don't put it on an old robe. And, and a bridegroom at a party, but yet when he leaves, they're going to fast later. Well, the answer is simply this. No matter what your way of understanding religion is, 
of living the Christian life, however you were raised with uh, any kind of faith, whether you're raised in the Christian faith, in the church, in the South, in the North, whether you're raised a Catholic, whether you're raised a Mormon, whether you're raised a Muslim, whether you're raised an atheist, it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, what matters is me. You have to take me for who I am and then build off of me all of your faith. Don't take Jesus and jam him into a hole that you've cut into your life and say, that's sufficient, Jesus. I want you over there. Or, Jesus, you can just have this little part of me over here. My Sunday mornings for an hour to an hour and a half, that's what you get, and the rest of the week is mine. That is a new patch on an old coat. Or, Jesus, you can come in here and, and you can make me say nicer things, but don't try to change my life. You can make me sing your praises and, and be nice to other people, but don't go telling me what to do. Don't tell me the job to have. Don't tell me where to live. Don't tell me to move. Don't tell me to do whatever it is you want me to do. Just make me a nicer person. That's new wine in an old wineskin. You're basically saying, I get to choose the bag. I might put you in it, but I get to choose the bag. I get to choose the wineskin. Jesus says, you want that? Then you don't want me. Stick with what you got. Don't pretend to accept Jesus, but really all you're doing is taking a piece of him. Don't pretend to let him change your life, but really all you're doing is let him change one part of your life. You see, everybody in Jesus' world for the next dozen chapters is going to take Jesus and try to put him into a box. The conservatives, both politically and religiously speaking at this point in those days, are going to make him out to be something that they want, and, and they're going to be mad when he's not. They're going to make him out to be a John type, or a radical, or a rebel, or a king who's going to rule with a sword. The, the liberal types, uh, the party animals, are, are going to make him out to be something that he's not. They're going to make him out to be uh, uh, somebody who's going to rescue all the poor, and somebody who's going to issue in a new way of living, a new socioeconomic way of understanding the world. A king, but a king who's really focused on the least and the lost in a very physical, real way, feeding the 5,000, for example. And what Jesus is essentially saying to both the ultra-conservative and the ultra-liberal, politically and religiously, politically and religiously, is, no, I am the epicenter of your life and of human history. I'm more conservative than the conservatives because I will fulfill the law in all of its freedom and all of its strictures and all of its whatever, and yet I am also more liberal than the liberals because I am issuing in a completely different kingdom where the poor are blessed where the meek inherit the earth. Jesus is more liberal than the liberals and he's more conservative than the conservatives and he is elevated high above all of them and he has his own way of doing whatever it is he's going to do. 
And to drive this point home, I'm going to go on just a little bit in Scripture. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate heads of grain and rubbed them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, what are you doing? What are, it's not, you can't do that on the Sabbath. They took the Sabbath very seriously. Read your Old Testament rules. I mean, there was a man early on in the wilderness who just picked up sticks on the Sabbath, and they had to stone that man to death. You don't fool around with the Sabbath in Orthodox Judaism. Jesus is plucking up grains. And Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those that were with him. He entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence itself. Which is not lawful for anyone but priests. And he gave it to those with him. And then he said this. Listen. Because at that point you could stop. You could stop the story there and you could say, ah, Jesus Jesus is a liberal when it comes to the, to the religion of Judaism. He is, just, he is just totally saying, do whatever you want. He, he's, he's on this other side over here. No, no, no. He says, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't say, I'm over here with the liberals. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, Pharisees, you're so right. I need to be more careful with my orthodoxy and follow the Sabbath even better than I am. He's saying, no, guess what? I made it. It's for me. Do you know what you do on the Sabbath? You rest. How? You rest in me. You rest in me, in Christ. It's not about the rules. It's not about breaking the rules. It's about finding me, the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we've got to evaluate right now your life and mine and this church and who we are and what we do. We have to ask really hard questions. Is everything that I do, whether I presume it to be good or bad, you know, whatever it is that I think that I'm doing in my life, is it for Christ? The enemy of faith in the American church has either been a new, strict, legalistic orthodoxy which elevates law over Christ or a kind of neoliberalism which says, do whatever you want. Jesus has set you free to do whatever you want. No, Jesus has set you free to become his slave. Wow. <laughs> That's difficult, isn't it? It's not your life plus Jesus. It's Jesus owns your life. That's the gospel. So as you think about your life today, even in lockdown, as you think about this church and what we're going to do in the next six months and years and decades and whatever time the Lord has given us left, if it's not for Christ, from Christ, it is useless. If it is law in your life to just make you feel like you're being holy, but it's not actually because you love Christ, it's just legalism. If you're raising your kids to be good rather than to be grace-filled believers in Jesus, you're just raising little Pharisees. If we as a church are doing good in the community absent the grace of Jesus for the gospel of Jesus, then all that we've done is make dying people feel a little more comfortable on their way to hell. 
if we as a church try to implement programming that seems like church because we see it on television or we see it on somebody else's live stream or we read it in a book, but it's not from Christ as led by his Holy Spirit to his people, then it's nothing but copycatting another person. This is radical stuff. And if you put it in a box, if you say, that was good on a Sunday morning, but you don't let it bleed into your whole life, You've actually ended off worse than when you started because you think you're a disciple, but you're not. You think you're following Jesus, but you're, you're not. This is what the disciples would do. The disciples would say, I'm basically taking this old wineskin of Judaism and I'm filling it up with, with Jesus' presence. And then what happened is they got to the cross and all those old wineskins with new wine just went kablooey. And they had to start all over again with their understanding of who Jesus was and what he was going to do on earth. We have to be willing, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, to perpetually reevaluate everything in our lives and ask, is this what the Lord wants? Is this what the Lord wants? And it's not just Sunday morning stuff. It's not, should we sing hymns or should we sing praise songs? It's not, uh, can we sing or, or where can we sit or should we be outside or inside? It's your life. If I'm out shopping, Lord, do I need this thing? And Lord, what about that person who's an essential worker standing behind there? Do they need Jesus? Lord, are you leading me to this place to, to speak your truth and your word, not to buy something? Is it, wow, this person hates me. Lord, how can I bless this person who hates me? Not how can I defend myself, but how can I bless? Not how can I make sure everyone knows that I'm right, but rather how can I make sure that everybody knows that Jesus is Lord in this circumstance? That's a completely different way of thinking. As we begin our new way of doing life in America, across the world, this COVID-19 time, our question will be, does what we are doing show the world that Jesus is king? That's it. We might disagree on how to answer that question right off the top of our heads, but my prayer is that the Spirit who loves Jesus will speak to each of us in such a way that we are bound together in unity. And if you have been holding back your life, if you have taken Jesus and put him just in this little box and shoved him in a closet to be pulled out on Sunday mornings and worn for an hour so that you can worship, I want you to know, friends, that your soul is at risk. Because that's not what Jesus accepts. He wants all of you. The analogy that we'll read later on, and going back to that picture of the bridegroom, no man who looks at his wife and says, I do, and marries her, only marries her for two hours a week. 
He might act like it. He's a bad husband. No wife marries a man and just marries him for 10 hours a week. If Jesus is the bridegroom and we, his body, are the bride, we are always his. Are you his today? Let's pray. God, these are very difficult questions, and the temptation can be to see the pastor as some kind of paradigm for answering these questions to the affirmative. But Lord, I am just as broken as anyone here. Lord, instead of turning to me, would we turn to your word and to your spirit? Lord, instead of seeing perfection in people, whether they be online or in person, Lord, would we seek perfection from you as your gift to us by your Spirit? How we need you. We need you to give us your Son, Jesus, in all of his completeness and righteousness and holiness that we would know him each and every day and live our lives day by day as his, his possession, his holy people, his children. Lord, we repent of the times and places in our lives that we have set aside for us. Lord, we repent of all of the things in our lives that we have put outside of the reach of your hand and said, Jesus, you can have my, my words, you can have my, my niceness, you can have, but you can't have my things or you can't have my house, you can't have my job, you can't have my family or my grandkids, you, you can't have my secret sins, you, you can't have those things. No, no, no. Lord Jesus, we repent of that. And we rebuke that attitude in our own souls and we say, Lord, all of us for all of you. Lord God, that's the deal. That's what you have given is all of you on the cross. No possessions, nothing held back. You on the cross, your blood dripping down to fill us with the new covenant. And if you would not withhold yourself from such a fate, how dare we? How dare we, Lord God? How dare we withhold even an ounce of ourselves from you? How selfish. Lord, how how mean to watch you die for us and just to say that we won't even give what little we have, Son of God, for you. We give all to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.